This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We just, I think, expect our kids to be able to just move into adulthood, right? Like, we, hey, you know, we got you... We got you through high school, and now we're going to send you off to college, and then you're just going to get it. But there's probably so much more to becoming an adult um, than just maturing and just growing older, right? At some point, you know they're not very well prepared. If you've ever dropped your kid off for college, you probably realize, oh, boy, I don't know if I ever taught him to iron. It's one of the benefits of – like in the LDS church, we send our missionaries out and uh, boy, if our kids don't know how to make a meal, to work, to exercise, I mean, it's, you may be creating, you may be creating a monster if, if you're not setting your kids up to succeed one way or another. But as Andy got into this idea of uh, just being nice, wouldn't that be one of the most important lessons we could give anybody today, especially to our children, is the idea of feeling um some compassion for the people that are around us, feeling a sense of compassion for the people in this world. I find it interesting that um, we're so quick to dismiss people today. We're so quick to just eliminate uh, an entire group of people because of where they were born or how they are born. Um, And it it just seems like why on earth do we need to draw such a small circle (laughs) Why can't we keep the circles bigger and, and why can't we allow you know people to just make mistakes in life? It, being mad about someone else's mistake doesn't in any way, shape, or form actually eliminate their mistake. It just makes it more difficult for people to move on. And as we see it in our political world uh, – Regardless, we can't be bullies. Even if you have the bully pulpit, even if you have the most important position in the world, you 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 still have to use it with some honor, with some respect, don't you? Because if not, what are we becoming? And so I don't know. I, I look at it and I think, what's going on with us that we that we don't get this? Uh, the Dalai Lama has a great quote. He says, "People were created to be loved." Things were created to be used. The reason why the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. What do you think of that? Do you think we're spending way too much time loving things, our phones, our apps, our ideas, our positions, our party affiliations, and instead we're just using the people in our life? You know, we like the people in our life as long as they meet our needs. We like the people in our life as long as they get us what we want. We use them. Kind of like you would a wrench, right? Or a a basketball. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. But at some point, these are human beings. And these human beings need to be understood. They need to be cared for. Have we got it backwards? I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any ideas on that, uh, text us at Dr. Matt Show. Um, because uh, really, at some point, we've got to stop seeing other people as just something that we can beat up or throw out or dispose of or build a wall around or ignore. 
and instead start seeing people as, you know, human beings, offspring from a higher power. I, I can only imagine what uh, what our God would think we're like as we just use each other for everything, for jobs, for alike. How interesting, too, that what happens to us when we simply separate ourselves by being able to make an anonymous comment on a YouTube or a Facebook page. How all of a sudden we turn into somebody that we wouldn't be proud of, that we wouldn't want anyone else to know we either talk like that or act like that or respond like that. And then there's those that wouldn't care. And why wouldn't they care that they're demeaning another or pulling another person down? Something's going on there, and it might be, and the Dalai Lama may be onto it, uh, are we using people? Martin Buber used to talk about this idea of um, – uh, he called it I-it or I-thou where we have a relationship with people and the relationship is either going to be I, which is me, in relation to an it, a thing, or the I, me, in relation to a thou, which would be kind of a highly respected uh, other person. So think about your relationships in your life. Do you tend to approach the people around you more like a, like they are an it, a thing, or do you approach them like that they are a, a thou? Remember, we use the word thou when you're praying to deity, when you're referring to the higher power that is has incredible, uh, incredible value, incredible worth. I, it, or I, thou. I think it's an important part for all of us to be looking at and uh, and actually evaluate our lives through that spectrum. Do we do we affiliate with people that treat others like its and things, or like you know thous and beings? It's going to eventually come back, I think, to hurt all of us if we're only treating people like its and things. Eventually, we demean and debase the entire human race. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Could we ever expect our healthcare system to care more about our health than we do? You know, in the end, how much, if you could take a pill to lower your cholesterol or, and, your, and, and eliminate some of your heart disease, or if you had to, you know, exercise, meditate, uh, do some yoga, um, and, and all of these other things that demand so much of you, would you do it? in order to create better health for yourself? Well, according to a nationwide survey conducted earlier this year by Harris Poll on behalf of CareerBuilder, it says that 56% of U.S. employees think that they are overweight. That sentiment of uh, 3,420 full-time workers um, in the study, half of those felt like they were overweight. According to the findings, two in five workers believe they've put on pounds in their current job on par with last year, 25% said they gained more than 10 pounds in the last year. 10% gained more than 20 pounds. Why the weight gain? It's attributed to sitting at the desk. 51% of the people blamed sitting at the desk all day. Too tired from work to exercise, 45%. Eating because of stress, 38%. Eating out regularly, 24%. No time to exercise was 38%. Workplace (laughs) celebrations, happy birthday! (laughs) 18% Eighteen percent are gaining weight because of that. How about the office candy jar? Sixteen percent of people say that uh, that is what's helping. That's causing them to gain weight. Happy hour to you know celebrate getting through the day. Four percent. So in the end, 
we're getting we're getting heavier and heavier, and many are blaming our workplace for that. Even though many work uh, organizations are have a culture where they're trying to create a wellness culture. In fact, in some uh, people in some programs, you can actually earn about five hundred and thirty-two dollars a year just for being involved. For example, some uh, wellness programs, so look into them at your, in your organization, will pay you $164 for health biometric screenings, or they'll pay you $132 for quitting, uh, for smoking, stopping your smoking. $111 if you enter into a weight management program in some of these uh, wellness programs. So just know there's resources for you. There's There's places you can go, or you can just you know, continue to struggle. We had a yogurt parfait bar uh, offered by our wellness program to draw everyone in. Everyone will come for some parfait, right? And uh, when they come, then you can learn more about the wellness program. So look into your organization. Or, by the way, if you, if you, you know, don't have a company to go to, look into what your cities are doing. And uh, even the hospital program that you belong to, if you have insurance, you probably yourself have other wellness programs you could be taking advantage of. But there are resources there for everybody. Again, the goal is to become as healthy as we can. And let's do it together, for heaven's sakes. Uh, let's even – let's not just rely on our senators and legislators to bring the health to us. Let's start figuring out how we can take care of ourselves. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, I've been quite blessed. I had uh, a mom and a dad, neither of which uh, graduated from a university. Um, I think they both may have attended a semester or a quarter or two. But the thing I think that happens to a lot of parents when they don't graduate And for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, we've been hearing the importance of education, get an education, obtain all the education you can. Parents have a weird guilt that, you know, you need to go to school. You get your kids, you got to go to school. You got, you really got to go to school. So I think the generations before my generation, I'm 48 years old, those generations push school a lot. And, um, and I, and I was interesting because my parents that didn't go to school ended up having, uh, three of their four children get college degrees at a master's degree or higher. So we took it seriously. Now, my parents would always read. That, and I don't know that I've ever met anybody that reads more than my mother and my father. They both uh, would read, you know, 10 books a month and uh, very well read, very well, um, very literate, very healthy people. Here's what's happening, though, that I'm seeing as I work at a university now and interact with a lot of younger generations. There's so many other ways to learn. And college uh, education and and universities themselves are losing a lot of trust in the world because, A, it's an institution. But, B, they've been increasing costs for at 300 percent growth in tuition um, over the last 30 years. So – it's creating more and more problems. And I wonder what happens going forward. So I would just suggest to all of us parents that we, that we maybe teach our children the principle of learning, teach our children the principle of, um, of trying to understand, of growth, of development. And it doesn't necessarily have to always be rooted in universities. It doesn't have to always be rooted in schools. It could be rooted in reading books, 
in uh, it could be deeply rooted in using the internet as a better tool for research and understanding. It could be having a family dinner where you ask better questions of one another and you have an engaging conversation. Don't tie learning only to a university. Teach your children the principles of learning, of growth, of questioning, of curiosity. These things, I believe, will serve them long term. I have a son right now that could make uh, more money than probably any of my kids that are in college um, simply because of his talent set and what he's learned on the Internet about running the Internet, editing for the Internet, music for the Internet. He just he's he's got it. And there's not – I'm sure – I'm not sure there's a lot of things he could learn at a university um, except those principles. But just because you go to a university doesn't mean you get those principles of learning and curiosity and uh, quality and values. So be careful. Teach the principle. And then it, you can still push going to school, but make sure that they're, they're trained up in the learning principle and in the being curious principle and in respecting everybody. Why not raise everybody if we can? Why not make universities free to everybody so we can raise our entire society to a higher level so next generations can have even more understanding, more insight, more light? Anyway, just a little, just a little idea for all of us. What part of the problem are you? What part of the solution can you be? What can you do today to go out and start uh, becoming the change that you seek in this world as Gandhi taught us. We'll take a break and come back, continue the journey and the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. You know, in recent years, leadership in America has become an assumed skill uh, that can be acquired in just a short time in maybe a course during a semester, you know, going to some executive program or training session or in classrooms on the job. You just it's just a skill. You just pick it up somewhere. But our next guest, Barbara Kellerman, is the author of the book Professionalizing Leadership. She believes that this mentality has led leadership to stay stuck and has caused leadership to remain an occupation instead of becoming a full-fledged profession. And she joins us today. Barbara Kellerman is the James McGregor Burns Lecturer in Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is the founding executive director of the school's Center for Public Leadership. Barbara, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Matt, for having me. Talk about this. What, do you, what exactly do you mean by, you know, leadership needs to become a profession? What would that okay. look like? So uh, I'm going to give you an example because we Perfect. have an example in the news uh, in the last 24 hours. So as you probably know, there's a new nominee for uh, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. That's Admiral, uh, Rear Admiral Romney, uh, Ronnie Jackson. Mm-hmm. And he has gotten very high praise. He's the president's, President Trump's personal physician, has gotten very high praise for being a good physician and very high praise for being very well-liked. But he has absolutely (laughs) zero experience running an extremely large organization, which, of course, the Department of Veterans Affairs is. So my question is, why do we assume that somebody who takes a an important leadership role can simply slide into that role 
without any expertise or any experience whatsoever when there is, in fact, no profession of which we would assume the same. And indeed, there's no vaca- uh, vocation of which we would so assume true. the same. So true. Well, and millions of dollars? If a plumber or an electrician for our, for, to repair our home or to work on our house, we are assuming that that person has a certain level of education and a certain level of training. We do not, for whatever reason, assume the same with leadership, with one exception, which is the American military, which does assume exactly. that anyone appointed or promoted to a position of any responsibility has been properly educated and trained. Isn't that true? And, I mean, I just think of corporate America. You think of uh, these large organizations like uh, even the United Way. You think if you're bringing a leader in, it's one thing to be, you know, an excellent um, tactician of whatever the specialty is of your business. But to then go in and have to lead thousands of people, tens of thousands, or all the money associated with all of this and the systems and the structures, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, and it didn't used to be that way, Matt. In times long ago, it was assumed, and I can think of you know some of the great names of leadership learning, Confucius or Plato or Machiavelli, right. they assumed you had to have an enormous amount of background and experience before you could possibly dream of assuming a leadership role. So what I generally do in, in the book that you refer to, Professionalizing Leadership, is to sort of fault the leadership industry, and we can talk about what I mean by that in a moment, if you wish, uh, for not taking leadership seriously and sending the misguided and mistaken message that you too can learn how to be a leader, as you said earlier, in an executive program of a week or a month, or in a course, or in a single term, or even a single year. Mm. No, it takes much more preparation to be a good leader, as in both wise and effective. Such great advice or ideas. Talk about um, the – because part of this is it almost seems like uh, there's not a quantifiable metric. I don't know. Like is that why we we kind of lost the idea of leadership as profession? Just because it's it's just something that's part of everything. I think that's a really good point, Matt. The metric of of good leadership is very hard to pin down. Uh, However, that did not used to stop us from assuming (laughs) that somebody who took a leadership role had to have some background and some expertise. So it's difficult to be precise because human beings are not widgets. But most of us know a good leader when we see one. We know when someone's being ethical. We know when someone's being effective. And conversely, we tend to be able to judge when somebody's ineffective and unethical. So while it's difficult, if not impossible, to pin down a standard or metric with precision, it is not. We make assessments of leaders all the time. So in this case, I argue, and by the way, there are people who have a variety of metrics, but none is widely agreed on. Hmm. That is correct. Still, we know very well that for any position of responsibility, any task of responsibility, some education and some training of considerable note is worth investing. And if we don't do it, then somehow we will pay the price for it. Again, to repeat, the military gets this right. They, and certainly someone who goes to the service academies, they are imbued with the ethics of leader, leadership, with how to be an effective leader, and they get educated, trained, and developed from the get-go. And that, that is, like, integrated into the entire 
process. That is from beginning to end, their goal is to actually make a leader. That is perfect way of putting it, Matt. It is part and parcel of the process. The message is sent for months, if not years on end, that you too can learn to be a leader, but only if you invest a considerable amount of time and energy in the process. It is not assumed to be automatic. I mean, there's something, whatever one may think of Donald Trump and his performance and his ideology, the simple idea that he or an Oprah Winfrey or an actress named Cynthia Nixon, who's now running for the governorship of New York, York, could simply be qualified uh, without any expertise or experience is patently ridiculous. And just one more word at this point, I argue in professionalizing leadership, you don't have to be in the military to get the basics of a leadership education and good leadership training. You can do it on a much smaller scale in a much shorter period of time, but you can't and shouldn't shortchange it altogether. Mm. You you say some of this just comes from the industry itself, kind of the leadership training, I guess, industry. Uh, so, So what happened there that might be driving this issue? And, and also, how do you fix it? Where do you where where does the average Joe go start their curriculum of leadership? Well, uh, to your first question, the leadership industry as we now know it is only about forty years old. It's only in the last few decades that there is this plethora all over the place in the academy, at, in high schools, at the undergraduate level, in graduate and professional schools, in organizations and institutions, private sector, public sector, you name it. Leadership training, uh, leadership learning, leadership programs are now ubiquitous. It is a 15 to $20 billion a year globally uh, global industry, and a lot of people make a lot of money professing to teach how to lead. But they generally, in my view, are slightly, I wouldn't say fraudulent, but misleading, Hmm. because they give the impression that if you read my book, if you take my course, if you come to my workshop or seminar, you too can learn how to be a leader. It's not the way it used to be. It is rather now becoming a money-making proposition for so-called leadership experts, some of whom are not incredibly well qualified. You you can claim you too, Matt, can claim yeah. how to be able to teach leadership without any credential. Anyway, yeah, anyone because yeah, because you've led before. It, you've led before, <laughs> or even if you haven't, there yeah. are many leadership read. teachers who have not led. They simply have some credential that they claim, but there's no licensing required. No, you know, if yeah. you're a second grade teacher, you need a license. Can't just walk into a second grade classroom and start teaching teaching uh, six or seven year olds. It's so true. So uh, you know, there's no licensing, no credentialing, no national organization. Again, there's no vocation and there is no profession that is remotely like leadership. Oh man, it's true, and it seems <laughs> like we're suffering then because we we do have it seems like an absence of leadership we have we have even we even have innovative like incredible uh incredible innovators and creative people i think of like a zuckerberg and yep. um incredibly smart but it doesn't necessarily mean they should be leading the company well mark zuckerberg was a perfectly uh, perfectly apt example obviously he's a genius yes uh, that goes without saying. He founded Facebook, uh, came up with the idea, was a imp- brilliant implementer, and has done, a, you know, uh, obviously brilliant performance even as an executive. However, 
since you mentioned Zuckerberg, we need to point out that in recent months, Facebook has run into considerable trouble, and he has not been. Mark Zuckerberg has not been, nor I might add, a feminist saint of some kind, Sheryl Sandberg. Neither of them has been have been particularly adroit at managing the crisis in which they have found themselves in recent months and in particular in recent weeks. So they're not exempt from this idea of, you know, it takes a little bit of skill as well as talent to learn how to lead. And they are learning the hard way that in this day and age, any leader that does not pay attention to his or her followers is going to be undone by them because the culture has changed. The technology has changed, and therefore followers are far Mm. more powerful than they used to be, and leaders, in effect, are far weaker than they used to be. You know, again, we're speaking with Barbara Kellerman, who is the James McGregor Burns Lecturer in Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. She's also the author of the book Professionalizing Leadership, uh, which was published at the beginning of uh, this month. Barbara, one interesting thing I'm noticing, though, we are seeing, like, for example, this idea of coach, like life coach. Um, that's becoming professionalized where you now can get uh, licensure. You can get, I mean, not not like, not like a medical licensure, but it's finally getting formalized. Is that really what you're looking for is this concept of being a leader needs to be much, much more formalized, even, even more so than coaching, but, but maybe not to the degree of medical doctor. Well, yes, I think that's, again, very well put, Matt. I'm not claiming uh, that leadership is certainly not overnight is going to be like law or medicine. Absolutely not. On the other hand, institutions and organizations that profess to teach leadership might take some tips from, let's say, the military or from professions or vocations that do it well. And I basically come up with three simple steps. This is not rocket science. Yeah. Step one. Education. You can't learn how to lead without having some sense of what leadership is all about. You wouldn't learn how to be a surgeon without studying anatomy. Similarly, spend some time learning about leadership. Second step, training. Once you have some of the basics, you understand what leadership and followership and power and authority and influence are. Get some training. That training can be experiential. That training can be in skill development. So step two is training, and step three is development. In other words, education, training, and development. What do I mean by development? I draw a parallel, for example, to adult development more generally. Learning to lead is a lifelong process. It's not something you pick up, as I've said, in a term or a weekend. So understand about yourself, understand about those who are around you, that leadership is a system. There are leaders, there are followers or others, and there is the context within which leaders and followers are embedded. It takes quite a while to learn all that. So get some education, even if it's very modest, Get some training, even if it's modest, and understand that development, that is lifelong learning, just as if you're a physician, you need to get continuing education. You can't assume that that medical degree is going to stand you in good stead lifelong. So understand that learning to lead is also a lifelong process, just as developing into a full-fledged 
wise, mature, and competent adult is similarly something you do not just in your 20s and 30s, but equally in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. Right. So how would you practically see this rolled out? If I work for Hewlett-Packard, would I work my way up? And when I reach a certain level of management, I would uh, then be placed into their leadership kind of program? Or would I be going and and actually certifying and being getting my MBA and with a with a minor in leadership? Yeah, I'm not even look, every institution and organization would do it differently. I think business schools that, you know, almost every business school teaches leadership slash management in one form or another. Yes, I think they should be far more rigorous. They should have a basic, they should have just the way a medical school or a, 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 a school, again, to be a plumber or a hairdresser or a truck driver. You begin by learning some of the basics. It is sequential. Again, this is not rocket science, but you establish a curriculum that begins with education, goes on to training, and continues on to development. That can be done within Hewlett-Packard. It can be done within the Harvard Kennedy School. It can be done at Brigham Young. Mm. Human resources people have access to lots of leadership programs. Colleges and universities are forever running leadership programs but they are not inclusive enough, they are not demanding enough, and they are not rigorous enough. So put in some education, that's required, some education, even if it's only a course or two or a weekend or two, some education, and we can, you know, one can discuss what that education should consist of, then some training, and then some connection to leadership learning lifelong. And yes, if you have passed certain steps, why not give a license or a certificate of some kind, even if it's only within the institution? But that certificate has to be demonstrable evidence of quality and of learning that, hasn't ta- that has taken place. It shouldn't just be given cheaply and easily. Yeah. No, I think this is brilliant. And, and now I just can't figure out, Barbara, why, why aren't we doing it? I mean, it's it's like it's a no-brainer, and it's in a way we take communication classes uh, to be supposedly better communicators. But why why are we not? Why is this not so much more attractive to the to the organizations? You know, Matt, because uh, leadership teachers, as you said, they can be in universities or they can be coaches and consultants, have in general gotten away with murder. <laughs> And leadership learners, that is, whether they're young students or whether they're people within an organization eager to get ahead, they're buying what we're selling. And we are not selling wares that are very well made. It's as if we're selling a product, but I argue the product, by and large, that we sell is shoddy. Once again, you only have to compare leadership learning generally in the private, not-for-profit higher education sectors, compare these with leadership education in the military, and you can easily see how it is done poorly and how it is done well. Again, this is not rocket science. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be institutionally or organizationally rich. You just have to think through what does it take to learn any task that is of any consequence. And again, I start with the vocations, not just with the professions. And we have to demand it, it seems like, as people. Like, we have to demand more from our leaders uh, and not just allow people to stay in positions because they invented the thing. 
They... I couldn't agree more, Matt. That's a long conversation. I would say that we are demanding it. Our trust in leaders is as low as it has ever been, whether these are leaders in business, leaders in government, leaders in the media, indeed leaders in higher education and leaders in religion. We are less trusting. We are less respectful of people in positions of authority. We are sending messages that the leaders we have are not good enough, particularly in liberal democracies. Unless liberal democracies learn how to get their act together more effectively than we've been doing in the last 10, 20, 30 years for various reasons, including, as I said, changing cultures and changing technologies, leadership in a country such as the United States, or for that matter, uh, Great Britain and France and Germany, leader leading in a liberal democracy will prove increasingly difficult. By the way, this applies in the private sector every bit as much as, uh, as in the publics and not-for-profit sectors. This so is not true. simply limited to leaders in government. CEOs are having a harder time leading. Their tenures are shorter, etc. across the board. You can talk university presidents. Every person in a position of leadership is having a harder time now exercising leadership than they did a generation ago. So true. So true. Barbara Kellerman, thank you so much for this uh, this great and even energizing for me now. Man, I'm looking at it. I'm going to be pushing on leaders more than ever before. Uh, professional, professionalizing Leadership is the name of the book. Barbara Kellerman, again, uh, a leader in the field of leadership as the uh, uh, James McGregor Burns Lecturer in Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School. And all of us, folks, we we got to be more real about this. This is these are your institutions. These are your this is your money, right? This is your government. This is your non for profit. This is your church. Um, we've got to we've got to make sure that we have the leadership leading the world that uh, that we need. There, we'll continue the journey, doing what we can on the show here to uh, help all of us be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, such a true point, right, that we professionalizing something as important as leadership could be um, – it could be such a rich uh, guide or, or help to all of us in, in our lives – uh, I notice that even in um, the, the the Church uh, of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I see we I, I heard a, a, a conversation a while ago about the leadership uh, is so old in the church, and I'm thinking, what? The reason is exactly what Barbara Kellerman was talking about. You have to grow leaders. Reader, leaders have to develop. They have to have opportunities to uh, lead, to organize, to to. Um, to have to learn the skills, the gifts of all of the things you need to do to be a leader, to be able to communicate, to create a vision, to try to inspire and motivate, to understand, to empathize, to counsel, to uh, to create new systems and structures and and diagnose problems organizationally. So I guess we just assume someone should be able to leave Harvard MBA school and just do that, right? Or would they actually need to have practiced it? I mean, are we are we just into thinking that all you really need really is just a diploma or just a, you know, something from the right school? Because 
graduating from the right school will automatically give you what the military can somehow instill in a four-star general in 25 years. You can get that all at an Ivy League college, right? No, it's not happening that way. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes it takes a, a, a need to process and to experience and on top of it to somehow integrate it into the rest of your life to create balance. Do you want a person that only knows leadership but doesn't have any other balance in their life? Life is about one complete whole and if, if we really want to try to get more um, more out of our institutions, then we have to have more out of our institutional leaders. And it's not enough that all they're really good at is the one thing that they've only ever done in their life. Think about how many times you could you could have an incredible uh, leader of an organization that impacts you every single day that ha- doesn't have any other depth in their life because they don't have other things going on. They don't necessarily... They don't understand the needs of a family or the the needs of a spouse or they they don't understand um other you know essential issues they've they've never lived abroad they've never traveled anywhere else they've they they haven't got the depth and if we want depth then we we probably need to demand depth and we we probably ought to start making some comments or saying something about um these issues professionalizing leadership how great would that be to know that the ceo of the organization that runs your your bank for example not only had an mba but also had 2 years of uh of residency let's call it learning leadership in in through three or four different educational and training programs along with a regular annual you know, 30, 40 hour developmental program. How great would that be? What's the downside to that? And again, back to President Trump, uh, you know, the Veterans Association is, I think, the second largest institution or organization in his cabinet, second largest in size. And uh, he fires his leader and then he hires his doctor. I mean, I'm not trying to be down on President Trump. I'm saying just because you have a great doctor doesn't mean that they'll be a leader, even if they are a rear admiral, right? Doesn't mean that they have what it takes necessarily to run the second largest organization. And I mean, I I see it all the time where they take the best sales leader in an organization and they make him the sales manager. And it doesn't always work let alone making him the chief global sales officer in the C-suite. Does he have any other idea of organizing the systems and the structures that need to be there to make something like that actually happen? It, it, It doesn't always work. So just think about it. Think about how leadership's impacting you and think about how you push on your leaders a little bit more. Uh, Also, another thing I do is make sure your kids are learning leadership by just talking about it more, sharing it more, and uh, and making it a part of their their curriculum when they go to the university and high school. Anyway, doing what we can to give you the tools you need, just a little coach's advice. You don't have to take it. It's just my idea. Hey, we'll come back, continue the journey. We'll be talking about counseling children on finding a career straight ahead.
Jim Citrin is the author of the career play uh, playback and uh, play, playbook, essential advice for today's aspiring young professional. He's also a senior partner and member of the board at Spencer Stewart, where he leads the firm's uh, CEO practice. And a few uh, months ago, we had him on the show to talk to him about how to talk to your kids about the realities of finding a career in today's day and age. I began the interview pointing out that kids don't always listen to their parents' advice. So what is a parent to do when they want to help their children with career decisions? I've got 25-year-old, 23-year-old, and 20-year-old kids. Yeah, there you go. And, and so I get it. But let me, let me give a little context because you're absolutely right in the setup. It's hard to advise young people, particularly if they're your kids, yeah. on how to pursue a career, how to get a job, how to think about it. But the broader topic is even though the economy at this moment is pretty good, it's very hard yeah. getting a job, getting a good job, how to think about a career when you're coming out of whether it's BYU or any university or yeah. in your 20s, getting that first step is really difficult. And it's shifted, hasn't it? Because it's not the same it's not the same kind of work market or workplace that it that it was 20 years ago. I think everybody knows that instinctively at yeah. this stage. But the statistics absolutely underscore that when you or I were starting out uh, in in a career or people in their 40s or their 50s or in their 60s, the average number of companies or organizations that you could be expected to work for over your career was three to four. Today, someone coming out of college or university can expect to work for 10 to 20 different organizations. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. So, So the actual act of... Managing a career is a skill in and of itself that will help determine how successful someone's going to be. And then the, 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 there's a good news and bad news to that. The good news is that there are genuinely more opportunities out there, more early-stage companies powered by technology that can do more with less. And that's exciting. And young people today are very drawn to the freedom and the change-the-world possibility of early-stage companies that might change as the, as the economy uh, gets in a more challenged state. Right. But the other, on the other side, companies don't have the resources to invest as much in entry-level programs, graduates, training programs, rotational programs that for many years in many industries created the foundation for successful careers. That just doesn't exist anymore. So it makes that first step extraordinarily difficult. How do you break in? How do you get that first shot? And so this this book that I wrote, The Career Playbook, has been a real effort over two years to distill tons of research and everything that I've done professionally, which is executive recruiting at the CEO level for the last 20 plus years, Mm. and applying that to people in their 20s. Oh, wow. Here we go then. Yeah. Unleash the Kraken, Jim. I, I really want to figure out. So so what do we teach them? What do they need to know? Because that, that's yeah. a, that, is, that is so amazing to me. 10 to 20 companies. Do you remember? It used to be the day, you know, if you could just get on with IBM, yes. you were set. Or a good bank. Or, or a good Parker bank. Gamble, that's right. Or, or a major not-for-profit organization. And, and that just doesn't no. really exist anymore. And so here, here's the way I think about it, and here's the advice uh, that and, – and we can have a special part of this conversation on, on if your listeners are parents, how literally to 
broach the topic with your kids so yeah. that they listen enough. Yeah. But the book actually is is written in a way that speaks in the language of young people in their 20s. And I had a lot of help with that. Again, my own kids and many of their friends. I'm on the board of uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Oh, great. And I lead a lot of career uh, planning efforts there. I was on the board of my own alma mater, Vassar College, for 12 years and led a lot of career stuff there. And then plus we did a massive amount of research over over a year period where I surveyed a team and I at Spencer Stewart, my executive recruiting firm that I am a partner of, we surveyed over 2,500 people in their 20s on a whole battery of different questions and things about how young people think about their careers, how they weigh off trade-offs, how they actually have gotten jobs, if they've gotten jobs, how they think about the trade-offs between money and lifestyle, a lot of very sensitive questions. But then, Matt, I, I mirrored all of that research with a lot of the client clients that I work with, I've placed CEOs of Intel and Cisco and Yahoo and lots of very high profile companies and have wonderful access to business leaders across not only the United States, but around the world. And I was able to do a hundred interviews with CEOs and chief HR officers to try and ask them similar questions about what advice they have. Right. Because it has to to match. It has to match, right? The youth, the the 20 year old has to have their their need met and understanding met with the executive that's going to be doing the hiring. If those don't match, this isn't going well, anywhere. Well, I'll tell you what. There are serious areas of disconnect, and yeah. it's not only that the young people don't get it, quote-unquote, but genuinely, here's something that I think is really important to point out, and this goes to how you talk to your kids about careers, which is it's really easy for a successful person or an older person to say, to talk about careers as if things were inevitable. And here's how it worked for me. That doesn't really help a young person who's looking forward. The, the point is that careers make sense only in retrospect. They don't make any sense huh. in where you are today looking forward. And all that does, in fact, the more successful you are, uh, the more successful a, a parent is, or, or, or an uncle, or an aunt, uh, or, or a friend, the more, the more anxious it makes someone hearing their story, because their thinking, their little internal conversation is going, well, it was easy for you, but that's you, right. and by t- particularly on issues like money. Most, most in, throughout the career playbook, I have these call-out quotes, because I have this working group of about 50 young people in their 20s, and I wanted to pepper it in with the anxieties that the young people have today. And again, it's easy for Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, or Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, or Sheryl Sandberg, and all these wonderful people saying, oh, here's what you should do. But um, so the, the, the best quote in the book is from this great young man named Nate uh, Nate said, if someone tells me to follow my passions one more time, I think I'm going to get sick. <laughs> so, so that's not helpful advice. Right. Follow your passions. By the way, I gave that advice last night, Jim. <laughs> I just told my son, hey, if you do what you're passionate about, you'll make enough money to be happy. And he's, and he's like, okay, Dad. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's like, okay, now uh, that. And uh, now how do I exactly. get a job that will actually pay the rent? Right, uh, right. That's, that's the next thing that they're thinking. And so I think the better the better – Uh, The better advice is to start with kind of 
an understanding of how careers really work today. The fact that, number one, and I, I, we can talk, and I know we have a few minutes, which is nice. I can give you some really concrete yeah. advice to pass on to, to young people that is proven. And that's the exciting part about this book, because it's a, it's a daunting topic. And oh, it's a huge. huge challenge. Right. And thankfully, you know, two years later of all this work and 20 years of executive recruiting, I was able to crystallize it, and it actually works. So thank goodness for that. That is Jim Critton again, uh, or sorry, Citrin again, and um, the book he wrote is The Career Playbook, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. There really are, there's so many things we got to teach our kids. On top of it all, give them the skills, the tools they need, hopefully that they can go out and get a job, and meanwhile, remembering the entire time that it's their life, not yours. Hmm. Oh, nothing's more difficult than the role of a parent, especially of a parent with an emerging uh, adolescent, one that's starting to grow up, starting to to want their freedom and and need to 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 step out of the nest. So, wish all you parents good luck on that one. We'll continue bringing the tools, the information you need, though, to live healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Uh, As we talk about depression or anxiety or I guess really any mental health issue, um, there is power in knowing your own, know, knowing yourself, right? And and getting a better insight into who you are. Many times when people will come see me, I'll just casually ask, uh, you know, do you think you're depressed? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. And then I ask, have you done anything about it? Have you sought counseling? Have you, have you talked to a doctor about it? M- most of the times, no, no. Um, why? And it makes sense, though, right? Because we we don't want to do these changes. We don't want to be pegged as broken. We don't want to uh, rely on someone else to help us. We think we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of it. One of the problems with depression, though, is sometimes you're already behind. And it might just be chemically. It might be just situationally. Your brain is just behind in in its ability to make the right decisions in the right timing, in the right way, in the right space. So sometimes it might help to just have an external intervention. And that intervention might be um, some antidepressants for a while, or it might be uh, some cognitive therapy um, and talk therapy for a while. Whatever it is, uh, getting a little boost, a little help is going to help one way or another because it's going to give you a chance to shift how you think about it, how you feel about it. But don't wait. We, we um, Especially if you've seen the pattern over and over and over. One of the best ways I've ever found to know if you need help is if it's starting to seriously impact your life, if it impacts your interaction with your children and your family, if you're starting to medicate, um, if you're starting to pull yourself away from everyone else, or if you're having aggressive outbursts, right? So if all of these things are starting to happen and it's impacting your life more overtly, more obviously, then it's time to do something. And the sooner you can do it, the better. 
Um, and I guess what I would do is just seek out somebody you know. And the other reason I would do it is because if you can have this happen to you, it's very likely your children could have it happen to them. And our kids need to see that we are doing what we can with our own mental health issues so that we can hand down these lessons, these learnings, these teachings to the next generation so they can handle their DNA. They can handle their genetics. We hand these traditions down, uh, whether it's a chemical tradition, whether it's a psychological tradition, whether it's abuse, we hand these down to the next generation. So the more we take on learning how to handle it and fix it, the better off we all are. It might very well be the greatest gift you can hand your children is a playbook, a tools book, a tool set for how to manage your mental health issues. Uh, We'll wrap it up with a quote from Thomas Edison. Our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Giving up on the issue and not trying to solve it, not trying to ever deal with it, not trying to talk about it makes total sense, right, when you're depressed. The problem is it doesn't make any progress. And all we need is a little bit of progress today on it, a little bit more understanding, a little bit uh, of, of solutions that work, and we can eventually build a way, uh, a literally, literally a ladder out of our depression or our mental health issues. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Everybody would like to motivate, move, influence, somehow influence another person, wouldn't you? And you want to. I mean, you need to. These are your kids. These are the people you love. These are the people that uh, you've been given a responsibility or a stewardship over, like your family, how powerful would it be if you could effectively just move them? Not to – I mean, I, I can get anybody to move if I make enough noise, right? I can scare you. I can intimidate you. I can, I can do so many things to get you to do what I want you to do. The problem with, with it is I also have to learn to motivate you in a way – today that I can still motivate you tomorrow. And the problem with some of our methods of motivating another human being is we do it at the we, – we actually do it and rob from tomorrow. Um, for example, if I use force and fear and coercion to, to motivate my children, I mean, I guess it works, but eventually my kids will be bigger than me. <laughs> They'll be stronger than me. They will be taller than me. And my influence will evaporate. My power will be gone because they won't respect me. They won't honor me as a parent. They just won't be there for me. So ask yourself about how you choose to motivate, how you choose to inspire or influence your family or your friends, your neighbors. Are you doing it in a way that actually is additive that, that makes it so it's easier to be more powerful tomorrow and even more powerful the next day because how you choose to influence them in every moment starts to create uh, more power down the road. The, ba- the best way to do that would probably be right to be, to, be, um, to be more principled in how you try to influence. A couple rules I give, though, if, we, if you want to quietly motivate others. First rule is a very basic rule. You must first be influenced by them. Before walking in thinking you know what someone needs, wouldn't it make more sense to find out what they need? One of the the things I do a lot when I do public speaking um, or just, you know, events or whatever, I always like to open it up to whatever the topic is. If we're talking about relationships, I would just to the group say, what makes relationships so difficult? 
And by just opening it up, you'll start to have hands go up. And as you start taking hands and start hearing what they're saying, I've noticed that many times just what they say, and sometimes I'll write it down on a board, sometimes I'll just go with what we're talking about, but I start to actually have my entire speech written for me. Okay, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about this. But be influenced. And the more open you are to being influenced by somebody, they then start to trust you, right? They start to actually – they start to engage you more because you are – you're actually willing to get into them first before just like laying down the law. Another rule is simply um, when you're listening to them and open to what they're doing, listen for what they're excited about. Listen for what passion they are bringing to the equation. One of the most powerful ways i found to motivate somebody is to allow them to just kind of be what they like to be. Let them go where they want to go with their, uh, with their sports, with their athletics, with their extracurricular. Many times as parents, we just want our kids to be a football player because we were a football player. But they come out and they, they're an artist and they want to be artistic and they really are into drawing. And uh, but you're like drawing isn't football and you really got to study and I don't know. Can you just allow people to be what they want to be? And you'll find that out when you listen to them. Um, another uh, powerful way to influence, I think, people is to give them role models of of people that, that they might kind of naturally lean toward, people they might be interested in, and let those role models uh, kind of be their guide. Find If somebody really loves basketball, for example, go find them a prototype. Go find them somebody – that you know came from circumstances like you're coming from and help them find a role model. Help them find uh, even an NBA star that is similar to them, came from a similar background. Go learn their story. Go find out how they made it pro. Go find out about their work ethic and let kind of a prototype um, be there for them, something that can show them that they can do this too. Sometimes the most motivating thing that can get anybody out of a, a hole is simply to know that someone else has done it. And you, you can be very powerful about that. Another thing that's really powerful, a way to influence is be their backer, right? Be the person behind their passion and help them get there. Put your money down to get them to art classes, drive them to art classes, talk about their art, show their art, give their art away, brag about their art, do whatever you can to highlight what they really do like, what they really are passionate about. Just some basic ideas, right, to influence another person and and to motivate them, especially as we see more and more of our children. We wonder, are they motivated at all? Is Are they doing anything in there? They don't seem to move off the couch anymore, but they will. If you'll dig into them, understand them, find what they're good at, find what they like, and then partner with them. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Compared to the scientific model, there really are a lot of people that question science. And, I mean, science has let us down a few times, right? I mean, uh, some past wrong science includes dinosaurs died from a volcano. Uh, There's a lot of genetic differences between the races. Tobacco is good for you. There are only nine planets. There's only one solar system, and water only exists on the Earth. There's some theories that have been uh, disproven, and yet um, we we so need science, and we also, I think, need other other intuitive theories where we use our intuition to better understand something that science maybe can't explain to you. Um, other issues like faith and and an issue of hope. And finding hope or 
just what creates a miracle um, in your eyes? Does everything have to be explained by science? Also, I've just noticed how sometimes science can let you down. I have someone close to me who has who's had uh, back pain, went in, got some shots in their back, and they just didn't work. And they were in a lot of pain. And they actually believed, based on what doctors were telling them, that, yeah, their, their back's going to be messed up forever, and they're probably going to degenerate, and then they're just going to be in a wheelchair, and slowly their life is just going to disintegrate. And then they showed those exact same images to another doctor and another doc actually two other doctors and two other doctors are like what no no i mean that's normal you're you're normal that's normal degeneration for your age so yeah the shots just weren't working what kind of shot was it what did they do where did they put the shot oh no you need this kind of shot and then that little information from another scientist helped that patient go clarify for their doctor what else could be going on? And then that person went in and had the shot where they needed the shot, and it worked like a charm. Ah, science. Isn't it great? But science impacts our head. It impacts our minds. It impacts our belief system, which is why at some point we might want to trust some of our intuition at times. We might want to trust some of our inspiration. When we get light or a, a thought in our mind— how many times have you ever gotten up in the morning? I had this happen to me the other day. I just wake up and there's this thought in my mind. And then I go research that thought and bada boom, bada bing. I've got an answer to an issue or a riddle that I've been battling with for months. I've got answers. And I believe there are answers out there for everybody. But you have to be willing to look more than just, you know, at your phone and more than just what you were taught once. Dig deeper. How many times has somebody just eliminated a theory or, you know, a religious belief simply because they uh, they just don't believe it, but they haven't studied it. They haven't evaluated it. They haven't worked on it. They haven't prayed about it, but they're going to eliminate the idea. And by the way, feel incredibly confident in eliminating it. One of my rules is if you have incredible confidence to the point of arrogance about an idea, you probably don't have the right idea. <laughs> because th- what I have found, the ideas that, to me that I, I have received and know most boldly and strongly don't make me more arrogant. They actually make me more humble. When you know truth, it humbles you. It's not something that should make you arrogant. Arrogance sets you up for the fall, right? Pride will set you up for the fall. So a little coach's corner for you, just helping you see that there's other thoughts out there and there's other thoughts inside of you that are coming from, I believe, a different source, a higher source, a better source, a more accurate source, a source maybe that's more aligned to you and what you need to bring to this world. And man, if all of us could connect into that source, woo, look out. We could create something powerful. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Rock Thomas. Uh, Rock is uh, a certified NLP practitioner, self-made millionaire, best-selling author, and author of the book, The Power of Your Identity. Today, he's talking to us about the power of uh, of how you can actually um, move your identity and, and recreate this sense of who you are. Um, and we're honored to have you back. Rock, thank you again for being with us. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'm passionate about the topic because there's a lot of people that are in pain because the love that they sought from people that labeled them poorly is causing them a lot of pain. I had a recent video that came out that went viral and was seen by 65 million people, and I had over 10,000 personal messages that came in. And, wow. And it was really power toward being able to change your identity, Matt. Talk about um, how you do this. How were you personally able to make your discovery? What happened with you? And, uh, and, and what are some ideas of ways that we can rework our identity? Yeah, so that's the reason I wrote the book. Is, uh, my five-step process is in there. But very briefly, what I discovered is that I wanted my father to be proud of me. And he was a workaholic. So what I did was I tried working hard all the time to make him proud, and it was never good enough. Whatever I did, it was never good enough, and it created a massive amount of pain in me. And then one day when he got cancer and, and you know, passed away, that sort of moved in the background, and a new mentor came into my life, which is the first millionaire I ever met. And he looked at me from a different perspective. He saw me, and I think people need to be seen. And when you see me acknowledge for what, somebody truly sees you as you can be, then you can grow into it. And he said, you know, you, you don't have to be that pizza-faced skinny little kid. You could be something you want to be. Who do you want to be? And I, I thought, I love Clint Eastwood. I want to be like him. Hmm. I was like, okay, well, what, what, what does he stand for? And I go, this is a ruggedly handsome guy. And he goes, ruggedly handsome. Your, life, your face lights up when you say that, Rock. And he goes, every time you think of pizza face, I want you to change it to ruggedly handsome and then say it a thousand times. Hmm. And I said, really? And I did that, and I started to shift how I felt. My confidence went up, and then I started to have success in work, and I went from a struggling real estate agent to saying, I'm the best real estate agent in my area. And then sure enough, I sold 100 homes a year and then bought the company I was working for. And I've used that to transform any negative belief into a positive and empowering belief. For the rest of my life, and and you just is it is it as simple as I guess all we have to do is get our mind to believe it. Yeah, I mean there's there's some layers to go through. It's not like you can just sit there and say I'm a billionaire and all of a sudden you're going to be a yeah. billionaire because you're not comfortable with it. If you're a golfer, you play really well on the front nine. You usually blow up in the back or vice versa because you have an identity of what you should shoot or how you should play. What we call a comfort zone. You have to graduate through it, but it is possible. That's the most important thing, and you've got to be in an environment that is supportive, encouraging, and challenging to get you to grow to the next level of what you can be. Hmm. That's, um, I mean, I, I guess part of it, too, is, and what's a little scary, I think, about identity is, like, like, and your dad was just trying to probably do the best he could do and didn't know any other way to do it but just work hard, son. And Or we, we, don't, we don't always know what we're doing to our kids as we're doing it to them. But some people also grow up um, 
in in a situation where they don't have a healthier version or an identity. They didn't they didn't have a an icon or a mentor that could come in like you had. How do we so how do we know where to hang that star or where to hang yeah. our goal? That's a great question. Today there are, there are no excuses. You can blame your parents, which you know is true, but there's no excuses going forward because you can Google anything you want. Google success principles. You can model people that you never even meet by reading their books or by following on, you know, radio, podcasts, what have you. There's no more excuses. You can transform yourself. But the problem, that is that environment is stronger than willpower. So, you know, you can take the guy out of the Bronx, but the Bronx stays within the person until that new environment is sufficiently supportive. And that's the biggest work that I have today is to create environments and ecosystems that help people change. Think of somebody who loses 100 pounds or 50 pounds. They're still fat in their mind for years sometimes. Mm. A woman that's raped, she still identifies with that decades later, even though the event is over. So there's some work that has to be done, but what I would think that people should realize is get yourself into an environment around a professional to the information and start the transformation by first changing the words that follow I am. If you say I am broke, change it to I am attracting better and better opportunities to me every day and say it and start to believe it. And and then I guess and and train yourself up in it. So uh, we, we talked a lot or over the years. We heard a lot about the secret where, you know, you could kind of project this identity you want out to the universe and then the universe would help you fulfill it. But you you made a point earlier that you also have to you have to do that, but you also have to be working towards it and creating the creating the environment, like you're saying, and creating the systems and getting people around you that elevate you and help you lift your game. It's more than just the thought. Yeah, totally. So we are energy and we are frequency and vibrations. So you're not going to be comfortable at a frequency or vibration that you haven't been visiting for a while. So you've got to get used to it. It's one of the reasons that athletes will often get close to winning the Super Bowl or they get close to winning a trophy or something, and all of a sudden they go, oh, they couldn't handle the pressure. Because they get there and the old identity of saying, you know, you've never beaten this player. You've never hung on at this point of the game, starts to call their names. So once they start to flirt with it a few times, then they get ready to handle it. The same thing happens with the level of passion in your life, the level of money, the level of comfort with other people. So you want to start to move into the environment. You want to start to visualize it, like you said, to visualize the identity going forward and surround yourself with people that can affirm it. The number one job of a coach or an athlete is not to tell them what to do, but to tell them how great they are. Because that, I guess, that facilitates the hope to keep going? It reaffirms the identity. So imagine Roger Federer is practicing, he hits a shot. The coach doesn't go, oh, you could have done better. He goes, that was awesome, Roger. Well done. Fantastic. I love the way you're moving. You know what, Roger? Why don't you just try it with dropping your hand just an inch more? Let's see what happens then. The same thing with Marilyn Monroe. She used to hide in her room. And you know what her team had to do? They had to come out to her and go, Marilyn, you're the best. You're awesome. Everybody's waiting for you. They love you. 
is to reaffirm, 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 reaffirm constantly. You get internally and you have crew around you doing it. And when that happens, your confidence goes up. You get the results. And when you get the results, you go, oh, yeah, I am a badass. Oh, yeah, I am great. And then you start to act that way. I know it's kind of weird, but if your environment doesn't support you, few people can push through that and claim their new identity. It takes grit to do that. And many won't make it through. So good. Interesting, isn't it? How how really susceptible we really are to what's around us, to the people around us, and, and how important that makes the role of us as leaders and parents to to be careful what we're projecting on others. Um, as we wrap this up, I wanted to, to get your idea, Rock. What's the one thing, if there's one thing I could do today that would immediately um, help me, you know, go to the next level? Um, and, and is it just to ask myself the I am question? Or what is the what is one thing I that every listener out there today could just do, the first step that would start to create yep. that change? So I'll do a quick exercise. It's kind of fun. Write down five to ten words that are the negative words you say to yourself, like you're stupid, you're a dope, you're a bad learner, you're terrible with money. And then as a fun exercise, go to three people that you love, tell them you need to do this exercise, and tell them the words you tell yourself. So that means I would come up to you and I'd say, geez, you're stupid. You're terrible with money. You're awful with organizations. And what this does is people won't speak to others the way they speak to themselves. And it'll create an awareness that you're beating yourself up. Everybody does it. And then... Take those words and upgrade them. If you say you're stupid, change it to, I'm an amazing student and I love to learn. I'm passionately curious, like Einstein was. Change the words of whatever is negative, upgrade them, and replace them. And you can transform your life without simple exercise. Mm. Basic, basic stuff. Good stuff, Rock. Thank you so much. Again, Rock Thomas is his name, the power of your identity. And... uh, and really, the I am movement. When you, when someone asks you, who are you? And you answer, I am. What's the next word that comes out of your mouth? And do you really believe it? At some point, we've got to start uh, being uh, the, the person we want to be. And really, I'd even say, take it even higher, be the person, you know, God needs you to be. Be the person that you have this, uh, that, that your heart inside you is telling you you should be and could be. You don't need to be the perfect person. You just need to You need to be the best you that you can possibly be. We'll continue discussing other ways to uh, lift your life straight ahead with a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, as I do uh, coaching with people day in, day out, it's it's really powerful, I think, to see what others are going through and to see this battle that we have with self-esteem and self-worth. There are a lot of other uh, ideas out in the world about how you build your self-worth. And in fact, today, in today's day and age, we hear a lot also about authenticity, that you have to be your authentic self. You you must be true to yourself. And uh, I think that's a great idea. I really do. In fact, um, I, I also, however, think it's not complete. Because just as we, we just learned from Rock Thomas, 
your identity of who you are is is not complete. Remember, your identity could have easily just simply have come from the fact that your mother or father, you know, told you that, oh, you are so beautiful. So then your identity becomes your look. Or your identity may have come from the fact that you work so hard. So hard work becomes uh, an essential part of your identity. But one of the things I have found is if your identity is not tied to a, a higher truth or a higher purpose or a higher order, then um, then you're just going to serve the whim of whatever your mind has made you out to be. If, you're, if your identity is about your looks, then you're going to be rock in this world f- easily till you're 45. <laughs> then when your looks start to slide as gravity pulls all of your looks toward your feet, um, the reality is you've probably lost a bit of who you are. And what you will then have to probably come to is this realization that you are not your looks. Uh, if, if your identity is about how much money you make, it's a great identity because, you know, you got to make money. You got you to gotta have a career that makes you a lot of money. But eventually you're going to find out that money can't buy everything as you're on your third marriage. At some point, you might need to find something else. So as, as we talk about identity, can I just suggest that self-awareness is great. The more you understand yourself, I think, is awesome. Um, but I don't think it's complete. I have found in my world and in my life, the best place for me to go um, to, to actually create and forge my identity are two places. One is to kind of look more heavenward to something bigger than me. And for you, whatever that can be for you, for me, it's to to look to my my God. Uh, for you, it could be just, you know, what is right, a higher power, you know, the law of the universe, whatever is a higher power for you. But the second way I found to work on my identity isn't actually to go into myself as much, but actually to get out of myself and work on with someone else and and lose myself in in the benefit of someone else. I've never known more about my strengths and weaknesses than simply trying to be a husband or a father. And that actually helps me become more and, and understand more of who I am. I've never felt better about myself than when I'm being a really healthy father or husband or servant in the world, right? And um, and what I found a lot of times is when we spend too much time with our arrows inward, trying to work on who we are, um, and we're you know trying to perfect ourselves, trying to do all of these things inwardly. I've noticed my arrows aren't pointed outwardly, and if I'm not pointing my arrows out, then I'm probably also not. I'm not exercising my gifts. I'm not sharing my abilities. I'm not lifting other humans on this earth. And I end up um, feeling less than. I think there is a reason why there's a tie between anxiety and depression, because anxiety makes me not want to perform my highest works. And then when I don't, I get depressed. And then when I'm depressed, I'm more fearful about performing my highest works. And then that drives anxiety. And then that makes me not do it. And then I get depressed. So I believe a lot of our mental health issues could go away if we could have a deep connection to a higher purpose and a deep connection to serving and bringing that higher purpose to everyone else in the world around us. 
basic ideas, right? This is just basic. But I found my esteem uh, improves dramatically and my identity of who I am improves dramatically when I recognize that no matter what, who I am is always in relation to a higher power, purpose, a God in my world, and to the people around me in my relationship to them. That's who I am. If we work just on you and who you are and you try to figure it out without a higher purpose, a God, or without the people around you, I think you've, you've kind of cut, cut the baby in half. You've just killed half of the game. And it's not going to serve you. It won't serve you. And it won't help you to actually know who you are because you can't be somebody that's not in relation to a higher purpose and um, a higher uh, – and, and the ability to connect and to relate to others. I just think it, it will make half of the person that you are. And I think in the end, you'll struggle. That's just – that's just my take. doesn't mean I'm right. But it, it feels real to me. And so when I coach people, the fastest way to kind of get out of yourself is direct your arrows out. Let's start worrying about someone else today. Let's start serving somebody. Now, you can go too far and lose yourself um, and not be healthy. And But again, I don't think your God wants you to work so hard that you're killing yourself. And I don't think that uh, your neighbors and friends and people you love want you to do that either. So in, in reality, it's the relationships that matter. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, recently, we had Jim Citron on the show. He's the author of the book, The Career Playbook, uh, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professionals. And uh, we, we like to, to revisit some of these interviews to give you as parents the tools you need to help your kids figure out uh, and guide them toward a career and the career decisions. In this section that we'll be reviewing right now, uh, Jim Citron shares three forces on a career um, that are the key factors that the young people use to make their decisions. There are three forces at work in careers that are constantly at war with one another. Hmm. And you have to understand those and then be conscious about what trade-offs you're going to make. And those three forces are job satisfaction, money, and lifestyle. Think about that. It's, it's relatively easy to optimize for the quality of work you're doing, whether it's something mission-driven. Again, BYU obviously has all about mission and yeah, service. purpose, yeah. There's purpose, but you can find that in a, in a company situation and other kinds of roles where it's about learning, contribution, impact, the amount of the, the brands that you're associated with, the people that you're working with, all the good parts about having a role that is fundamentally important and you have high job satisfaction. Yeah. So that's one part. Two, though, is money. Sometimes there are very big trade-offs. It's like, okay, well, I could do something I love and not make a lot of money, or I could do something yeah, right. and sell out and make a lot of money, but am I willing to work in something that is either not making the world a better place or something I'm actually not that interested in or in a culture that's toxic or super competitive or something like that. But yeah. there's often a war there. But then the third factor, sometimes you can find both, but then the third factor usually slides, which is lifestyle. Okay, you, you're passionate about the law and you're working for a great law firm, but, and you're, you're making a lot of money, 
oh, yeah, but you have to work 100 hours a week. Right. And, okay, you have to go serve on these out-of-town things. Or if you're working in management consulting or lots of the – gov- you can work on lots of important things and be passionate about it and have a decent lifestyle. Oh, but you don't get to make any money. So Yeah, or it's not conducive that. to family or it's not – yeah, yeah, and so that's a that, so that that's like a Venn diagram is how I see that. Is I mean, it's like now all of a sudden you've got job satisfaction, money, and lifestyle, and there's got to there's going to be a give and a take, or like you say, a war between those three areas. So the the advice that a parent can say is is Jane, John, understand that there the that there are these three forces at work. I call it the career triangle in the book, but a Venn diagram is fine. Oh yeah, recognize that you can have it all. But you can't necessarily have it all at the same point in time. Mm-hmm. And recognize that if you're in your 20s, maybe it's the time to invest in your learning and and not worry so much about the money. Or if you've got $30,000 of student loans, which many American students have, and they have to fight off, they actually have to have jobs that will pay. And if they can work on things that are really meaningful – they might have to say, okay, well, for the next five years, I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to work, you know, weekends or whatever it takes to do that. And recognizing that when you're in your 30s or if you're, if you're at a place where you have young kids or trying to do that, then you can trade off. Giving someone the knowledge that those three things exist and that you can actually make conscious decisions turns out oh. to be enormously power, empowering yeah. for young people. So much more powerful than uh, maybe trying to, you know, force an idea. You need to be a doctor. When we're talking to our children about future careers, you know, and being able to be dynamic enough to make it through, you know, 10 or 20 companies potentially. So what I want to do is mention something that I would put as strategic and then get really tactical and give parents some specific advice you can give kids or if any young people are listening now, what are the two most important concrete things you could do tomorrow? So first, the strategic, to put the, this context, something you, Matt, have written about, talked about, are expert about, and that is relationships. And I have seen over many years, and I've seen this and I've proven it, and it is absolutely the case that relationships power careers. Mm. Relationships power getting good jobs. Relationships power being successful in your job. And relationships power being happy in your job and therefore in life. And I know you've written about this. That's powerful though, isn't it? It, Having a relationship mindset is really important. And what that means is that every young person who's thinking about their career hears the advice, oh, you need to network, network, Mm -hmm. network, network. And, And I actually am not a fan of the concept of networking because to me that connotes a, you know, take advantage of somebody or be uh, take, take, develop relationships only for your benefit. I am much more in the give and take kind of relationships. And because having an attitude of abundance and the more that you give away, the more that you can look to help others, the more that it comes back to yeah. you. And again, that sounds nice, but a young person thinks like, well, okay, that's nice. When I get a big job, I'm happy to, uh, <laughs> to help others. Right. But it actually is important right from thinking about what is out there possibly and using good personality and using politeness and using uh, proactive skills to get into discussions, asking for advice, 
offering ideas and having a relationship mindset is really, really I love critical. that idea. I really do. How do how so so what would you suggest that I'm telling my 20-year-old or my 23-year-old to make sure that they're engaging in relationships now and, and they're learning those skills? Number 1, never ask someone for a job. Ask someone for advice. People love to give advice. And if you're polite and you're persistent and you're creative, you can get yeah. people are more connected than they think. Right. Just because your parent isn't a Fortune 500 CEO or some big, big muckety-muck out in the world, through your university, through, your, uh, through LinkedIn, yeah. there are other ways to get an audience with someone if you're creative and persistent. So get, getting, an, getting a dialogue going, asking for advice, and then here's now uh, here's here's now a really tactical, important thing to say. Yeah, just so you know, we've got about a minute and a half is all we've got left. Right. Okay. Perfect. Have an elevator speech. Have have the answer to the question. So, Matt, what do you want to do? Huh. And each person, whether you're 25 or 55, needs to be able to say in two sentences what they want to do and why. And I'll give an example, and that's what powers the relationships to actually get the referrals that yeah. actually lead to the jobs. So I am passionate about the environment. Therefore, I want to work in a not-for-profit dedicated to combating global warming. Hmm. I've always been passionate about the stock market, so I want to find a job in investing. I'm interested in the political system, so I'm looking to get a congressional internship. One sentence about what you're interested in linking to one thing you want to do. And that little nugget giving to someone can then say, oh, I just met this great young person named Matt Townsend yeah. who's interested in the environment, and That's he's interested in your, in, in your global warming uh, yeah. uh, not-for-profit. That's how it works. Fifty percent of the research uh, of our grads surveyed got their jobs through referrals, and that's true all the way up to the CEO level. And it's so. so true because so many times you'll just ask them, so what, what are you thinking of doing? And they're like, blah, blah, exactly. blah. They don't want – they don't know how to articulate that. Yeah. So if there's one thing you can tell That's your brilliant. listeners, can tell their kids, have a two-sentence answer to the question, what do you want to do? Rehearse it in front of the mirror and have it come off your tongue instantly. And you plant that seed with everybody you talk to and you'll be shocked yeah. how quickly things come around. Stick with us because we're doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. 